when I look at the political landscape and the economic landscape of the world, I really have a difficult time accepting that this is what life should be. They had so many concerns about education, technology, agriculture, barbuda, health, the environment. You, you will be so surprised as to what they are engaged in. If we can do that, we can walk on that path, we will find a lot of solutions, we'll find a lot of adventures, we'll find a lot of answers. We need to foster that entrepreneurial spirit. No judgment, no negativity, all good vibes and conversations. All this and more right here on Grassroots Radio. Hello, podcast fans. Welcome to another episode of Grassroots Radio. I'm Yannick Bird, your host, and my guest today is Shanna Challenger, a young local ecologist currently employed as the coordinator of the Redonda Restoration Program. So yes, she is in part responsible for the remarkable rebound in the ecosystem of that island, and she has been recognized by Caribbean Beat as one of the top 25 Caribbean achievers under 25. I gotta warn you guys, there are some audio issues on this interview. And by way of apology, we've included some extra goodies in this episode. So be sure to look down in the episode description and check out all the great links we've collected for you. Thank you so much for your patience and your continued support. I know that you are gonna get so much value out of everything Shanna has to say. And with that, here is Shanna Challenger. Alrighty. Hi, everyone. My name is Shanna Chantel Tomster. I'm 24 <laughs> years old and I am an ecologist. Um, and so, no, not an economist dealing with numbers, but actually dealing with plants, animals, um, ecosystems, etc. And I have the very best job in the world. Okay, and what is that? <laughs> <laughs> My job for the past three years has been revitalizing an island, basically starting an island from scratch. I have the privilege to work on Antigua and Barbuda's forgotten sister island, Redondo, mm-hmm. and take it from nothing to something. So when the island, of course, was um, discovered by, quote-unquote, discovered by Christopher Columbus, it was, like I said, green and teeming with life, lots of things going on it. And then when we went back in 2012, 2013, the island was completely deforested. It looks like the surface of the moon. You know, no plants, no trees, just rocks. And when you look at it from afar, you're just like, oh, how could that possibly sustain any life? But once you flew over, got in the helicopter and actually got down there, you saw how much life was actually over there. So even through those hardships, we had um, three species of critically endangered lizards that are found nowhere else in the entire world, only on Redonda. Um, we have thousands of seabirds choosing Redonda because, they don't, you know, they don't want to be anywhere where the humans are because we, right. we mess things up a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so uh, instead of doing that, um, instead of being there, they choose Redonda because it's completely uninhabited, of course. Um, the waters around it have a lot of... Um, productivity around it so lots of food for them to eat and they can you know breed without fear of anything that was going to be bothering them except for the two major things that were left over there by the humans like i say always us causing problems which would be rats and goats and so because of the human because we the humans were living over on redondo um during the mining period like i said there's a lot of birds choosing to um pick redondo as this as their spot and with birds, of course, they eat a lot, so they poop a lot. And back in before World War One, you know, bird poop was gold. I wish it still was gold because I'd be rich now. But the amount of times they pooped on me, um, but it was gold. It was gold back then. And so um, there was an American mining company that made an agreement with the British, because of course we still under British rule then. And there were about 200 people, mostly men, who were living on Redondo. Um, permanently and they would um, basically gather up all the bird poop and ship it to England so they could use it for ammunition and for fertilizers up in England so mm-hmm. yes a little fun fact and so of course when those people would have gone over there they would have had to bring you know their clothes bring all of their stuff with them and with them of course came rats and rats are 
the best at, you know, colonizing an area and making it theirs. <laughs> They're really good at it because they can stow away into little small um, crevices and they can multiply really, really quickly. And of course, eat everything, including each other, which I have witnessed and is not, oh, no. not, not very good. But um, once they got onto Redonda, remember, of course, I say it's just seabirds and lizards really over there. And so they were the apex predators. Nothing was really bothering them. And so they were able to quickly multiply. And just for a little context, Redonda is really small. It's probably, it's not even one square mile. You know, Antigua is 108. Yes. Um, or is it Antigua and Barbuda? That's 108. Geography people listening, please don't kill me. That was a Antigua long time alone ago. is 108. That was a long time ago. Barbuda is something else. <laughs> yeah, something else. Anyway, so like, oh, Antigua is 108. Um, Redonda is not even one square mile. It's 0.1. It's really, really tiny. Um, and so on something so small, we had over 7,000 rats on the island. And then you said how many men were living there at one point? So, about, something about so, two, small. so 200 men. Yeah. And so mm. I actually love intense? over there. Yeah, it, it, it is very intense because it's like all cliffs, um, no trees, like I said, so it's all sun all the time. Um, of course, no Wi-Fi, no electricity. It is, it, it is really fun to camp over there, though, because, of course, there's no light pollution, so you can see all the constellations at night. Oh, yes. uh, when you wake up in the morning, you have the beautiful sunrise, and, of course, you have the birds chirping. It's very much like being in a storybook mm-hmm. when you're over there. Um, but, yeah, the, where, the way that I came in is, was to deal with these invasive species. So, like I said, they would have, the rats kind of stowed away with them, and then they actually brought the goats, of course, as a food source, and so they were um, eating and killing the goats while they were over there. But then, of course, if it's time to leave, for you to go back to your family who are run goat pun cliff before they have to get back, right? <laughs> so, the, so the goats just remained and remained and remained. Um, but of course, they're goats, as opposed to, another fun fact, as opposed to sheep and cattle that, you know, they will just crop. So think of them as just like a lawnmower, just kind of mowing the lawn, you know, mm-hmm. as opposed to goats, which would are ripping out um, everything by the root. So there's not any chance for anything to survive. And so the, that's why the island became so deforested so quickly um, and for such a long time, because of course you have the goats that are eating the plants. So they're eating all the leafy green stuff. The, the rats are, far, are foraging on the seeds, right? The mm-hmm. rats are also attacking the seabird chicks and eating the lizards. And like I said, eating each other when it got to the, because it's so hot over there, especially during the dry season, there's hardly any food. If they saw a rat that was dead, they would actually just eat it. And so when we were staying over there the first time, um, we basically put out traps to kind of get an idea of how many were um, on the island at the time. And by the time we would get back to the beginning of the trap, we would just find like body parts of the rats because the others would have taken. Very gruesome, but very interesting though. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Well, it's an interesting interesting. case studying like ecological collapse because that's basically what happened. Completely. And so... It's amazing that the that it was that we weren't too. I mean, we were too late with some species. So Redonda used to have its own iguana. We had our own iguana over there. Um, we also had our own little owl. An owl. Owls. Owls. I yes. didn't know there were owl like there were Caribbean yes. owls. There were. They were. And but because of course those species, of course, the iguana would be more um, dependent on the greenery. So once that was gone, it would have died out really quickly. And no. then the owl, um, it's a borrowing owl, and they are ground nesters. So, of course, underground oh, with a big rat. Um, mm-hmm. And the rats, by the way, they, it's not like they were coming out at night either. Huh? They come out high daytime. They don't matter. They don't care what time of day it was. <laughs> they were out. The 24-hour rats. Right? They weren't, they weren't afraid of you. I would expect that I'm there. They run. They would see me. They would watch me. And they would continue. They They're were the nothing. top dogs over there. They <laughs> ran things over there, literally. Right. And so because it was um, such an unfortunate circumstance um, that had happened over there where, you know, redundant didn't ask for that. <laughs> it's those invasive species that would have come and, uh, you know, messed up the whole um, ecosystem. And so that is where we came in with the redundant restoration program to see if we could really bring an island back to if we could turn back the hands of time, basically, and get it back to at least uh, what it could have been. And so. That's exactly what we did. Um, first off, we started off by um, removing the goats. So um, I actually don't eat goat water anymore since 2016 uh, because um, each goat, each goat, it was, and, and, I mean, even the goats, um, a lot of people were just like, why didn't you guys just leave the goats over there? Um, they're just minding their business, whatever. But every time we would go over, and 
these goats, I must say, they're, they're Spanish breeds. So we did some genetic testing on them. They're Spanish breeds. So they're um, family to some um, Cape Verde off the coast of Africa. And so um, they're a really good breed and they're drought resistant. Um, however, a lot of times, every time we'd go over, we would see dead bodies the carcasses because there was hardly any food left and so right, we starving. decided it would be yeah it would be more inhumane for us to leave them over there to right. starve to death mm -hmm. than to you know bring them over here where we can study them um we can check their breeding we can actually you know feed them so that they survive um which was another interesting thing when we actually brought them over there i compared them to goats here um, it has to do with a little ecological um, thing called, um, um, like, you know, you have something that's all together and then once they're separated, you know, they kind of evolve. And so with the goats, um, I remember one of our goats, um, so a couple of goats were staying at the Ark with Dr. Fiona. She had some older, I think they were, were they older? No, they were younger than our goats and they were so much bigger. And I was just like, oh, that's interesting. And then mm. I realized that, of course, on Redonda, because there was hardly any food availability, um, natural selection would actually prefer for the smaller goats to survive because, of course, they would have less requirements. And so they'd be able to live longer and be able to reproduce. And so all of the big, the big sizes, of course, would have died out because they would need more food and they would be able to survive. So goats from Redonda was actually stunted because oh. of the fact there was hardly any food. So um, compared to, say, so if you look at a, a six-month-old, a six or, or let's just say a one-year-old, um, and Tegan breed is the size of a three or four year old Redonda breed. It's actually very interesting. Yeah, they're um, like mini dogs. That they would um, change that way. Yeah, they would do yeah, they're, and they're very cute. <laughs> and so we brought them all over um, and like each one of them, I held them in the helicopter, um, the babies, I would feed them, all of that. And so I've gotten too attached to goats to actually eat, you know, their cousins um, in some stew <laughs> at night. So. I've stopped eating goat water completely. And then for the rats, it involved us huh, camping over there for two months. Um, and it was a lot. Yeah. It was definitely a lot. Um, I remember my first night there, you know, being in my tent and hearing, um, you know, you're in your tent trying to sleep and you can hear the rats outside. Um, you can hear them climbing on top of your tent. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you could, you just, you just hear them. So how many, like, what was the size of the pop, the rat population on Redondo so, yeah, when you guys was, first went so over? So when, when we first went over, it was about six or 7,000 of them. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Within like 0.1 square mile. Yeah. They were all over. That's horrifying. <laughs> That's it like was, a nightmare. It was, it was a lot. It was a lot. And I had to keep reminding myself, I don't think I got much sleep that night. Um, I just have to keep reminding myself, Shani, you're bigger than them. They can't hurt you. <laughs> but it was kind of eerie just like, you know, having, like being in your tent and like literally like hearing them outside your tent. Um, and we had rat traps because, of course, we had food because we're camping and you have the rat traps. You can hear the rat traps going off. You can just hear them going off. So you know, you know they're right outside your tent. This is like um, being in a movie or something. It, it really was. Um, but then you get accustomed to it. Mm -hmm. And then, and so what we, we did, um, we did a combination because we're done, because it was so many rats. Um, the island is really, really mountainous. Um, we actually got, so the people who were staying over there with me, all of them were volunteers. So none of them got paid. I don't know how many Antiguans I would have been able to get to stay over there with no internet. Um, no electricity, not getting paid, hard work all day for two months. But I was one of them. <laughs> I was one of them. Um, but Dedication. Day, it, it, and, it, and that's what it took. Because um, mm -hmm. every morning, so we'd wake up at about five and um, get our stuff together for the day. Um, and everybody would have, um, we basically divided the island into different lines. And so everybody would have a different a line where you go from the north, from the south of the island all the way to the north and back up. And so um, we would take all our baits. So you'd have, you know, the 1.5 liter um, water bottles. Um, we'd cut off the tops of the tops and the bottoms of them. So it creates like a little tunnel. Yeah. And then we would wire four pieces of bait. And we put that down like every 30 meters or so. And then we'd, you know, we'd check in. We'd come back the next day and we'd see how much of it was gone, um, what ate it. So we can, we, we can tell... Um, you can tell based on the teeth marks that they leave on the bait. Um, you can tell what would have eaten if it was a crab, if it was a lizard trying to scratch at it, um, if it was a rat indeed. Um, and the good thing about this bait, it only targets mammals. 
And of course, the goats were already gone at that point, and the ghosts mm-hmm. wouldn't have been looking at. And they would go. Right. Ghosts would have been trying to eat nothing like that anyway, right? right? And um, we do. The crabs love it. Um, I actually, fun fact, I really don't like crabs. <laughs> I don't like land crabs at all. They're so scary, especially at the night on Redonda, because the, the big purple ones. I'm talking. Oh my god! But right. they love. They love to eat it, and of course, they're invertebrates. Of course, it doesn't do anything to them. Um, but it, 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 it. Um, it bothers it bothers me when I realize that they were crabs. I'm like, oh, so many of them. <laughs> um, and they're just yeah. eating your bait. They're just eating the bait. Just a snack for them. Replenish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if it, if we're realizing, okay, there's a lot of crabs, because also um, droppings. That's another thing we look at. Um, so any droppings we see, um, we can. So crabs, their their droppings basically look like commas, and so uh, if we realize, hey, okay, crab, this one is too too many crabs are coming to this one. Uh, we'll move and we'll move it and like make a note that we moved it or whatever and see if it t- the uptake goes on. Um, then another thing, um, of course, with the rats, it turns your poop um, blue. So we can look out for the rat shaped, so the rat sausage mm-hmm. shaped droppings. Um, and yeah, we just did that for two months. <laughs> so first with the toxic bait. Um, and then the good thing about Redondo, well, good and bad thing is that majority of them died um, on the surface. So we were able to dissect them and make sure that it was actually the rat bait that was killing them. And so within, within, the, um, within the two months, so we put on the rat bait and then we also put out like um, non-toxic bait. So if you have um, a rat that you know, they, they really like the smell of peanut butter. So we'd make like peanut butter wax. Um, we'd make um, chocolate wax. It was very, very nice scents actually. Um, and just to see if like, if we missed a rat or anything. So you'd have us on the ground um, doing that. Then you have, we had abseilers. So we had mountain climbers on the cliffs, slingshotting bait. We had people wow. hanging out of the helicopter, throwing bait. The good thing about this bait, of course, was that um, the rats didn't really, it takes three days. And so um, they were continue eating without realizing that they're poisoning themselves. Oh. And it kills them by internal bleeding. Oh, um, wow. So yeah, they just slowly realized that, oh, I'm dying, I'm dead. And so, yeah, we were able to um, get rid of them that way. And, of course, we continue to go around the islands to make sure that um, they are still rat-free. And so from since the, the last rat we saw was, like, February 2018. I think that was the last rat we saw, February, oh, wow. mm-hmm. February 2018. And so, yeah, it's been a, um, a full year and a, a year and a bit since we've seen any rats. And um, we do, like I said, and biosecurity checks to make sure that they're not there anymore. And so, yeah, very expensive to get that kind of thing done, by the way. Yeah, we're lucky to say that with Redondo, I wish I could show a clip, but you can't show clips on podcasts, but go on our Facebook page, um, but you can see the before and after of Redondo. And so now there's um, like weight height grass. We've had birds coming back that we've not had before. Um, we have land birds coming back. We've had bats coming back for the first time mm-hmm. as well. And so the, the lizards as well, we've had guys, um, herpetologists, um, guys who study lizards um, from Harvard University come and the lizards have actually doubled and tripled. So the ground lizards have doubled and the tree lizards have tripled um, in population size. Um, and the seabirds are also having their highest breeding um, season yet. And so, yeah, with just a little help from humans, nature has been able to heal itself. Mm-hmm. So, Excellent. Yeah, we're pretty happy about that. And congratulations yeah. to you and your team and everyone involved in that effort. It was quite a feat. <laughs> yeah, it really, it really was. <laughs> it's amazing that it was successful. I'm curious yeah. though, what was the genesis of this program? Like why... Like, who decided that this needed to be done now? And kind of how did you guys put this team together to go over and start doing that? And also, um, where did the funding come from? So, um, the, I should have probably started off with who I work for. So, I work for the Environmental Awareness Group, which is the oldest nonprofit environmental organization here in Antigua. And the EAG has for years been putting in work from since 1995. Um, they've been working on the offshore islands, specifically um, the ones in the northeastern marine managed area, the Nemo. Mm-hmm. Or so, you know, Great Bird Island, Green Island, those islands on the east side. Um, basically, they did most of their work there. And 
they would have had, of course, the success of bringing the Antigua Racer or only endemic snake, yes. or only snake, or only snake period, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, bringing yes. our snake back from the brink of extinction. And so with the success of the offshore islands conservation program, um, one of our members, um, Mr. Joseph Prosper, he had always been talking about Redonda. He said, you know, guys, we need to be doing something about Redonda. We need to be doing something about Redonda. And we had um, a, a specialist from Fauna and Flora International, which is a UK-based NGO. And she, um, she, so they went on the helicopter with him, and then she realized, yeah, we, we need to do something about Redonda because if we don't do it now, it's going to be too late. Um, because, like I said, the island was literally crumbling into the sea. And so um, with some help from Fauna and Flora International, we were able to get some funds to be able to do so through the Darwin Initiative. So basically, uh, um, British citizens, they donate, they pay, I think one of their taxes is like environmental something or or other. Um, But yeah, with that money, the government then gives grants to do different um, types of environmental work. So that was one of the major sponsors, um, the Darwin Initiative. Um, and then we were able to get support from other organizations such as U.S. Fish and Wildlife, um, Taurus Foundation, Global Wildlife Conservation, um, Disney, Birds Caribbean. Mm. It's, it's a whole consortium of organizations. <laughs> so I don't want to list all because um, mm. I might forget somebody. But it was, yeah, we were able to. Um, and, and I will say as well that the Redonda Restoration Program, it was, even though it was headed by the EAG, um, there was also support from the government and FFI, like I would have mentioned, because of how important and how big a project it was um, we realized that it couldn't just be one organization doing everything that it had to be you know a group of people coming to get it done mm-hmm. a true collaborative effort put on my devil's advocate hat for a second yeah because i can see some people who maybe are not into the environment or don't pay attention to things like this who would see this as sort of a frivolous pursuit like, yeah. why would you spend all this time and all this money and all these brilliant people's, you know, mental resources on, quote unquote, fixing an island that no one lives on, that's just a rock that would crumble into the sea? Why is it important to do this kind of thing at all? Yeah. Okay. So for those kind of people, um, I try to let them think about, you know, the bigger picture. Um, and so Redonda. It is, it is ours, you know? So if you're losing Donna, you're losing a part of Antigua and a part of our beauty. You're losing a part of yourself, right? And so that's the first thing, the sense of ownership for it because everybody should feel um, something towards Redonda. Um, the next thing is that it is so historically important. Like I would have said, the um, mining um, here in Antigua, of course, we have Nelson's Dockyard, which is really um, representative of, you know, the naval, the, the shipping um, era. Um, of course, we also have, like, Becky's Hope and stuff, which would be of the slavery era. But we don't have anything that's representative of that industrial era um, when, you know, industries were booming. And Redonda, which I didn't mention, but on Redonda, there's also still some buildings from back then. Um, oh. Buildings, there's ovens, um, there's fireplace that kind of thing and so uh, water catchment so it's actually very historically and archaeologically important um and so if you lose redonda then you lose that piece of history and then of course for me the biggest thing would be the ecological loss because if we were to if we were to leave the rats and goats over there they would have continued to override basically override that entire ecosystem Mm -hmm. and then already like i said we've lost the owl that's not coming back ever extinction means everybody knows what happened with the dodo imagine that happening here in antigua Mm -hmm. you know you lose a lot of ecological value when you lose your endemic species and so redonda alone has three endemic species of um, lizards. We're also now finding out that we might be having endemic species of um, plants over there as well, you know? And so mm-hmm. here you have a resource where your Antigua and Barbuda students can come and research this and find out more about it, you know? If you had not spent the time to improve the ecosystem, then you would lose it completely, you know? And so Redonda, it is value. It has a lot of value. It's a local and regional international treasure because everybody knows how um important it is and how we have been able to you know save it and so yes it might seem like it's a waste but you have to think about 
what you would what you stood to lose if you had not done anything about it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really great perspective, particularly the historical aspect of Redondo, which I think a lot of people don't know anything about. I am 32 and mm -hmm. I only learned about the mining that happened on Redonda like a couple of years ago. Yeah. It's not something that is really that prevalent in, I guess, what we learn in school or anything of that nature. So even to hear no. that there are still mm -hmm. buildings over there is like fascinating. Yeah. And speaking of education, I didn't mention this, but that's also something that I've been really working on ever since starting my job. Um, and so being in the schools a lot, in fact, I'm actually working with the um, Ministry of Education to get Redonda included in the primary school curricula. That's um, so good. So that at least, because I'm so tired of when we do these school presentations, you know, you ask them to do a food chain and they're telling you, oh, an eagle or, um, you know, a giraffe, a lion, mm -hmm. these and I'm just like, you know, you don't have to use these international examples. We have, I mean, people don't even know here that we have, like, we have falcons, we have hawk here. <laughs> people forget yeah. that we have raptors. Um, and even the fact that, you know, you can use a redundant ground lizard or something instead. And so trying to show that Antigua, you don't have to go internationally. You don't have to go abroad. We have so much to be proud of here, um, ecologically, right here in Antigua. That's a great message. And I also wanted to ask you about generally when we're speaking about ecology and the Caribbean region, and you mentioned a lot about different endemic species and these seabirds who a lot of them are migratory. And I wanted to ask about how the Caribbean ecosystem fits yeah. into the larger, the larger global ecosystem and how that might be changing with, you know, the trends that we're seeing around the world of sea temperatures rising, sea levels themselves mm -hmm. rising. And yeah, just kind of yeah. what are you seeing on the ground? Right. So the Caribbean, of course, is a biodiversity hotspot. Um, so think about um, the Galapagos, um, the Pacific, um, Hawaii, etc. We are biodiversity hotspots. So we have islands that are not only, um, so islands which are not only full of species, um, full of species that are endemic, meaning that they are found um, only in that region. So think of like a pelican, the Caribbean brown pelican. Yes, we have it in um, other countries, but it's a regional endemic. And then you have, of course, um, national endemic. So down to the islands, specific species that you're not going to find any other country anywhere else in the world. Another reason why we're a hotspot other than the species that we have is that we are under a lot of pressure and there are a lot of things that can happen to, you know, reverse the, make it bad for these species. So whether it be deforestation, poaching, unsustainable development, etc., these species can be erased very quickly. Okay. And so with the Caribbean, um, I would say, I think we have maybe like 35, I don't, don't quote me on this, but like 35% of the species, um, we're leading a lot with reptiles. We have quite a lot of reptiles in the region, um, I think followed by birds in terms of endemism. Um, but these species, once they go, like I said, they're gone. That's it. <laughs> Not good at all if that happens. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, here in the Caribbean, we have, I mean, we always see these, these um, people from international universities coming to study and to study coming because what we have here is so special and it deserves, you know, all of this research. So for an example, um, a lot of people don't know it, but when the frigate bird sanctuary, right? And then the third yes. thing you think about mm -hmm. is pink sand. What a lot of people don't know yeah. is that Barbuda actually is um, where Antigua, well, Antigua and Barbuda has our only endemic bird. So the Barbuda warbler is a bird that is found nowhere else at all in the entire world other than Barbuda. And so huh. imagine how we, the ecologists, were when after the hurricane, the, for the first two weeks, we didn't see any at all. Yes. Yeah. It was really, really tough. And we were very, very worried. Um, but did they it was really, back? really tough. Yeah, so they did come back. Um, the, the, uh, after two and a half weeks, they came back. We saw the first one. And so that was, that was for me, like, a first, like my first-hand experience of the, oh, my gosh, the pose just mm -hmm. has wiped out um, kind of thing. And I realized how bad that would be, you know? Um, so, um, yeah, with that animism, like I said, there's a lot of interest in it. 
And so from the time Hurricane Irma had happened, we had a bunch of birders reaching out to us like, what can we do for the Pablo? We need to, we, they actually ended up chartering a plane just to go and look for the bird. <laughs> they chartered a plane That's so <laughs> just awesome. to come, you know? Um, and so um, it, 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 there's so much interest in it. And we are so lucky to be in the Caribbean because, um, you know, we have all of these species and because of all the drama that's happening with all the other big countries, so the US, Canada, China, etc. when these species, I also say um, the Caribbean is also a very um, important like stop oversight for migrating, migratory species. So like when we have humpbacks passing through, um, peregrine falcons, even the laughing gulls, etc. The Caribbean is the place where they're like, okay, Jack, I can take a little breather here. Mm-hmm. I can come Antigua. I can fill up my belly. I can, you know, relax here a little bit before I have to go back and deal with all the drama that's happening up in the States. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and We're a vacation is, spot for the birds as well. We, we, are, we are a refuge, mm-hmm. you know? And we, we can see that, we can see that, we ever, and especially for us, because we do these bird surveys every year, these species are continually choosing to come back to Antigua because they know it's somewhere they can get food and they can be safe um, before they have to go back and, you know, go through the winter. Um, and to, with the Caribbean, it's just showing that we have a lot to be um, proud of <laughs> and that we are a diaspora, which we always love to say, but um, other than just for humans, also for species as well. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and also a tourist destination, not just for humans, but for species. Yes, as well. yes, yes, for species. As and well. that would come with a responsibility to be good stewards over our environment. And yes. You mentioned sustainable development or unsustainable development. Mm-hmm. And yes. especially on Antigua itself, we have a lot of coastline projects. And mm-hmm. in particular, our Northeast Marine Management Area is now under threat by additional development. Yeah. Are, is this something that the EAG is looking at? Or is, I mean, I'm just wondering, like, what can be done to protect areas like this that are currently under very real serious threats? Well, you know that that area is in a protected area. Yes. Yes. So... Uh, one would think that the legislation should be enough to protect it mm-hmm. um, because, of course, in a protected area, you're not supposed to have a number of illegal activities such as um, deforestation of mangroves, um, dredging, dredging, which is about to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, Concrete it's, land. It's, it is very devastating. That is what I would say. Mm-hmm. because, And that's why with my work, Put me with the animals all day. Put me with the lizards. Put me with the birds. Put me with the snakes. When it comes to the human aspect, always complications. Mm-hmm. And I will always prefer species over, and over humans every day. So for us, remember that we would have, we have had 25 years, you know, 25 years that we've had been putting in work into this area to even make it attractive for development in the first place. Because mm-hmm. I guarantee to you, because this is, um, Redondo was the 16th one, so we've restored over 15 offshore islands in the Nama area, wow. right? Wow. So 15 of them don't have any rats on them, don't have any mongooses on them, don't have any goats on them, and are teeming with life. When you pass by, the water is so clear. Remember, everything is in the ecosystem is connected. So mm-hmm. when we take rid of the, get rid of the invasive species on the islands, there are more seabirds there. When the sea, more seabirds are there, of course, they're pooping and all of that. And so that's enriching the coral reefs that are down there. When the coral reefs are looking, well, I should say the mangroves and the coral reefs. So when the coral reefs are looking good, of course, their water is more clear, um, more blue, more life is there mm-hmm. in the waters. And so we are... I don't want to say the whole reason, but we have played a major role in making those offshore islands attractive um, as to what they are right now today. And so when you have something that's literally happening right in front of your face that is basically slashing down all of the work that you would have put in, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. Um, and so we have met with the developer to um, express our concerns. We've sent a number of letters to the government agencies about it as well. But 
um, alas, we are still in the same situation. Um, there... And it seems as if uh-huh. our hands are, it's, our hands are, t- are tied. And the sad thing about conservation is that a lot of times these things require money to be able to like, you know, do a, 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 bring, a, do a lawsuit or something, or if you want to buy an island to make sure it's not developed. And of course, because we're a nonprofit, we don't have right. that kind of money to do so. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's difficult. Um, and it's something that really affects us. Um, we have something called floating classrooms, actually, where we take um, students um, in primary school, probably like around the grade six age usually, and we take them um, into the mangroves. We show them upside down jellyfish, sea cucumbers, starfish, etc., baby lobsters. And then we take them over to Great Bird and we show them the snake and we show them the seabirds so they can see how all the ecosystems are working together. And like, you know, right where we have to drive by, you have that kind of thing happening. And What's the reaction my, from the students seeing the, the contrast of those two things? Like, here so I am trying to show you shocked. the love. Mm-hmm. They're shocked. They're shocked. And so, and I, I do think that the gen, this, our, our generation and the one that's coming up after us has realized that, you know, we're in deep stuff right now. And if we don't, if we don't do what we can, then it's going to be too late. And so they're realizing that, hey, this is wrong. I think everybody is realizing that it is wrong. I think for me as well, it's like we've done this already. There are a number of books that, I've, that we have in our possession that, you know, they talk about the whole Jolly Harbor situation yeah. as, a, as case studies about what not to do. This is what Antigua did. Do not do this. Mm-hmm. Because, of course, with Jolly Harbor, it's basically the same thing that happened, where you had a bunch of ponds backfilled, um, you had a bunch of mangroves removed, and now look, little rainfall, West Palm Beach flood out, Olin's flood out, this place flood out, this place flood out. Was the extra $10 that you make worth your house being flooded out all the time? Nope, certainly all not. The, all the species, all the habitats for the species that were lost, all the crabs that the, pe- the boys used to be able to catch um, when they were younger. Was the loss of that worth it? It really wasn't, you know? Mm-hmm. And so here we are doing the exact same thing. And my thing with nature, which upsets me a bit, is that nature likes to take its time to show what's going to happen. I'm just like, no, show them what's going to happen right now. <laughs> but I know it won't be until, you know, in the next 30 years or so, not even, probably not even that long. Yeah. But as, I, I, I don't think it's going to be that long because, of course, in that area, that's the eastern side, and that's the side that the hurricanes come the hardest. So what's going to happen to the communities of Parham, Setons, Glanville's, when there's no mangroves to protect them from the storms? What's going to happen? You know? We know what's going to happen. Well, well, we, well, that's the thing. We know what's exactly going to happen. We know exactly what's going to happen. And yet we keep repeating the same mistake. Same, same, same. And that's what gets me frustrated. It's not the first time. It's not the second time. Like, why are we continuing down this this road you know yeah what do you think could change people's mind i mean is there something in terms of public support that individual members of the public could do to i don't know if it's put pressure on the government i don't know what role the government has to play in this particular situation at this point since you know what's happening in nema is yeah it's kind of a private sale between private companies it uh, is. Even though it's an area that should not have been up But, I mean, out. my thing in the yeah. first place, you know, um, well, my thing is that um, we should always be trying to get a balance, make benefit over ecological benefit. You know, why can't it serve yes. to masters? Yes. And so I think the first thing would be trying to make sure that they understand that, you know, this is a protected area and the value of having these ecosystems here, you know, it's just as much, if not as much, if not more than the, eco- the economic value of, have of you know, developing them there. I do think if enough persons of the public were supposed to say, hey, we're really against it, then it would at least, you know, we've started the conversation, but it would at least take the conversation a bit, more far, a bit further, like, hey, okay, now our constituents are upset about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we don't want to see just, you know, all of our work reverted um, and especially on the offshore islands where they, like I said, remember I was talking about some of the birds that are coming all the way from, you know, some of them come from, 
only from Alaska and coming down to Antigua mm-hmm. to overwinter. And so we are now deteriorating the habitat that they are going to be in, you know? And so, yeah, and sustainable development is not a, it's a very present um, issue here in Antigua. Um, environmental impact assessments are supposed to be done for every development, but sometimes they're not done. And sometimes recommendations are, you know, ignored. And so, you know, we try, we do our best. <laughs> um, Your work is like greatly appreciated, you know? Yes. I know it can sometimes be like <laughs> a thankless job because you've been spending so much time on this and now it's being undone, but it is important work. Yeah. And I personally, and I know a lot of people out there are happy that it's being done and that someone is taking that responsibility to be a steward of our environment. And you mentioned something about the, the yeah. connectivity of the ecosystem and everything in it. And a lot of times as humans, we forget yeah. that we are part of the environment. You know, we're not separate from it. We can't survive without it. So no. it can no longer be an option for us, especially in an island, to be like, oh, well, sustainable development is something that we can consider. Like, it's not no. an option. No, necessities. It really isn't, um, especially with mangroves. Anyone anyway, people think about mangroves, unfortunately, the first thing that comes to their mind is like you know, stinky, smelly, sand fly, and mosquito, right? <laughs> right. But mangroves are so much more. When um, you have all of the all of the pollutants from farms and stuff running off, um, pesticides, etc. The mangroves are um, with their roots. They are holding all of that from going into the sea, right? Mm-hmm. They're the reason why the water is, well, in addition to the corals, they're the reason why the water is so clear when you get into it, um, where you can hashtag your yeah, I live where you vacation, right? right? Um, also, the mangroves, of course, for some of the birds as well, very important habitat for them. Um, and then mangroves, of course, are the nurseries of the sea. And so all of your baby fish and... Um, baby lobster, jellyfish, crabs, etc. That's where they all grow up, right? So if you mm-hmm. get rid of the mangroves, you have um, less juveniles because, of course, they're gonna they're not gonna have any mangroves to hide in, and so they're gonna be um, available to predators, and mm-hmm. so more likely, you know, to get gobbled up, which means less fish available for you and your family to eat, right? Yeah. And so there's it. My my thing with um environment in general, I try to let people think that we have to start thinking always in the long term because thinking in the short term, look at where it's gotten us, you know? Um, And so it's just thinking about the little things that you can do. So like you said, um, humans being a part of the environment, just little things that you can do. And so um, especially in our mangroves, another thing that we experience a lot is illegal dumping. Really? Mm. Illegal dumping, a lot of it. Oh my god, dumping of just, just garbage or like construction waste and like what kind of dumping? In the Fishes Creek Swamp, which is behind the stadium, there are huge mangroves behind it. For to get there, of course, there are pieces of people's houses. There's like stairs, there's car parts, car doors, oh my god, tires, there's fridges, stoves, fans. Um, somebody had a party, so there's like piles and piles of Caribbean um, beer cans. There is so mattresses, dolls, just all discarded. This is so upsetting to hear. Discarded, right? Yeah. And when you have all of this garbage, there's something called, um, which I hope people know about right now, like microplastics. Because, yes. you know, plastic doesn't ever really break down. Mm-hmm. Well, break down completely. It just gets into smaller and smaller pieces. Right? And so when you have all of this garbage in a mangrove, and you have these plastics that are breaking down, and they're, remember the mangroves are where all the baby fish are. Right? Yeah. And you have these little fish that are looking for food and are accidentally, because they're just opening their mouths and expecting mm-hmm. to eat something, and are swallowing these plastics. And swallowing more of them and more of them. And then they get to you as a human who is now eating the plastic. The, you've eaten the fish filled with the same plastic that you mm-hmm. put in the mangrove in the first place. Mm-hmm. You know, it, is a, it, is, it, it can come and bite you right back. 
you know? Um, And so we, again, thinking human, you dumping, because what it seems to be is that the trucks, instead of um, visiting, instead of um, visiting the dump, they get, they, I think when you go to the dump, I guess you have to pay a fee or something. So instead, they just go and dump it in the mangrove because nobody's behind there, nobody's studying, nobody cares, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And they just leave their stuff there. Um, we also, you know, dead bodies of dogs, dead goats, etc. But the good thing is that we use this as an educational tool. And so we take students out there to go and see the birds, right? And then also see how humans are and how disgusting we can be mm-hmm. um, and how you have to think. You have to, you have to think. And I mean, that Pitches Creek Swamp, it is actually globally recognized as an important bird and biodiversity area. And you know, these are, and it. we're dumping stuff in there. It is really, really sad what we have in here in, in Antigua with this mentality. And I mean, I, on Twitter, I'm known for always talking about the fact that if I see anybody littering, if I see anybody eating stuff during the close season, and I see people drinking from a plastic straw, from a plastic bottle, I ready to cuss them. I always ready. I'm always, I always ready to report them, call the police on them. Because the only way, unfortunately, the same way with when the plastic bag ban happened and the styrofoam ban happened, you have to basically shame people, right? And it's only when things become taboo that people will, you know, be, feel like, oh, they shouldn't really be doing that, you know? And so you ha- when you see somebody littering, um, or even if they're accidentally, because I mean, how many of us have, you know, had like a napkin or something, you know, a lap and then guess what the car is like, oh Lord, that's a little something, man, it won't be doing that too much, you know? And so mm-hmm. it's just those little things, you know, changing to a reusable bottle, um, especially I try to push that as much as possible because um, here in Antigua, we're still very reliant on those Oasis plastic bottles, oh, yes. you know who you are. Um, but yeah, not using plastic straws, of course, because we've all seen that turtle video um, where one had, gotten, where it had to have the straw removed from its nose. Everybody's seen it, so you know what yeah. they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with cutlery as well, um, I unfortunately sometimes fall prey to this because I forget to walk with my um, cutlery sometimes. But you know, if you don't need, so like some restaurants, I know like Geo's for sure, they don't give you cutlery anymore with your food. Oh, okay. Yeah, they don't give you forks and knives to, um, you know, limit their plastic consumption. And I know it's a big switch. and You can't do everything overnight. But if each of us does a little bit, we can all do a lot. You know? And yeah. so that is what I, I try to, because it might seem like, you know, so especially with the close season, after all this explained over and over and over and over again, about why they're important. Um, and I know people love their lobster. I know people love their chub or their parrotfish. I know people love them. Um, but we have to think in the future because what's going to happen when your grandchildren have never been able to eat conch because our generation yam off all. What's going to happen? Yep. What's going to happen? <laughs> Well, we're going to starve, right? We'll be like the rats on Redonda. I think yeah. that's a really good metaphor because Eating that's what other. happens when you decide that you're not part of your environment and you can do whatever yep. you want with it. You know, you have to eat each I other. think right now in 2019, a lot of things are, a lot of, a lot of things are happening. And I, I, I hope that people are paying attention. You know, the glaciers are melting completely. Um, the Amazon, well, we all know what's happening in the Amazon. It's on um, fire. And... Yeah. Yeah, it's still burning. Um, for I, I, for those who don't know, it's basically being pushed by the the cattle ranchers, and it's because of the demand. I think about like twenty percent of all meat in the world comes from Brazil, some well, from all beef, I should say. Yes. And so they're baking land for their cattle to be able to graze. And so, if of course, if we were less dependent on their beef and all of that, they wouldn't have less demand for it and they wouldn't have to burn so much again little by little limiting your beef consumption you know more plant-based etc would you know mm-hmm. have well i mean a lot of people are like oh well, what can we do about the amazon what can we do about the amazon and it might seem like a very 
not real big realistic thing to that can help but it was supply big. and demand supply and demand um another thing of course is um global warming and everybody knows how hot it is outside I, the good thing about global warming is everybody gets it by now it is hot as hell outside and um there's actually some research saying that in about 10 years this will be the coolest that it is mm-hmm. it won't be any cooler than how hot it is right now you know that will be our new our new cool right i haven't done any economics um courses but i know that you know people only continue to do something if people want it and so with our consumption you know um with the close seasons if i see somebody eating conch right and it's the close season like it is right now from july 1st to august 31st if i see somebody eating conch and it's the close season right mm-hmm. i i'm going to also want conch right yeah so if so now you have two people who are demanding conch during this close season right mm-hmm. and um that then turns into five more people and 10 more people and then right exponentially these, yeah you have these um all these people who are now depleting this another thing that happens is right before close season um a lot of fishermen will go and pile up for in their mm. fridge right mm-hmm. and so the 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 thing is it's not like if we can because <laughs> a lot of people especially because lobster um close season happens within sailing week and a lot of them are like you know oh how, how y'all gonna have it during sailing week this is when everybody want lobster we cannot speak to the lobster yeah. and them and tell them <laughs> hey girl hey sis i need you to breed i need you to breed like next week not this week if that's okay yeah or, or hey can you release your eggs at this time and we can't this isn't something we that we're that. making up right it's a natural cycle yeah. so exactly and the close seasons are basically done according to their spawning um so it's when they're going to be reproducing that we close it so that there's as much adults as possible to produce um to to participate in the breeding and so it's it's crazy the kind of reactions we'll get and um but we try yeah. and my the, the only thing you can really do is educate people and i mean they're like oh so like i said for the people who would have had it in their fridge the person who now has seen you at the conk and wants conk they're not going to get it from the fridge cuz they don't have none from their fridge right and so if people see you with it um again they're going to want more and so what they're trying to do with the post season another thing is to change the mentality you know so that people know that hey i am respecting the close season and i need to make sure that you know i'm doing as much as possible and is respecting it in this time so mm-hmm. try not to eat when you're not supposed to eat people seriously and i mean it really shouldn't be that hard yeah. but i don't know there's something about people just kind of like breaking rules or getting away with stuff like yeah i'm cool cuz i have this when other people don't yeah but, exactly um, i'm really curious jana as to how you personally developed this love for the environment and what led you into studying ecology and becoming an ecologist right um so ever since i was um pretty young i have always been very much into animals um i remember vividly like being in shows in the line with my mom and she's like trying to buy me princess books or something and i'm picking up a book on snakes <laughs> you know um so i was always very much into animals um so and then i mean i guess around high school kind of time I was like okay I like the sciences yes um but of course they kind of made it seem like okay you like the sciences so okay you have to become a doctor mm-hmm. and I didn't I I don't like and I still I didn't like it then and I still don't like that narrative now um because it's very one once one minded very very close minded I should say yeah. and um it it doesn't have any respect for any of the other sciences that you can go into but I was like okay, I guess, and I went to state college. I did the sciences again. And then when I was going to Barbados, I picked biology and chemistry. I got to UE and um the good thing which I always tell people, go to UE, go to UE. You must, you have to. It's supporting our regional product and you're not you're not too far from home. Um but when I went to UE, 
the good thing about the course is that it, in first year, they teach you a little bit of everything. So every part of biology. So I was doing biochemistry. I was doing um, ecology. I was doing evolution. I was doing um, like cell biology. And so because it was all split up like that, I was able to decide which parts of it I really, really loved. And, you know, I realized with my bio, you know, we were doing, we were doing so many cool field trips. Like I remember, like compared to all my friends that were in like SOSAI and were like, you know, in class all day, I'd be like, oh, we're just going snorkeling this weekend. Oh, well, Ooh. this week. So, yeah. But this is during school hours, you know. Mm-hmm. So, like, so for like an entire semester, every Monday and Friday, we would do our snorkels. Um, and it would, and if, if not that, then sometimes we'd be at the beach. Um, sometimes we'd be in gullies, um, literally gully creeping, looking at the plants, looking at the canopy cover of them and so I got so immersed with the field work, field work aspect of it because to be honest I don't really love being in the office all the time I find, I find it kind of gets dreary mm-hmm. um, and being able to be out in the outdoors and basically do something different and that's the good thing with ecology is that you know it's the study of the entire ecosystem and how things are working together and so um, although I work very closely with you know species I will say um, with ecologists it's kind of um, it, it's kind of a break about what you like. I'm more on the animal side, definitely, than plants. Um, I wish I could be more into plants. I just don't like the fact that they don't be moving. <laughs> I don't like the fact that they don't be moving. You're um, prejudiced against plants. I am. I am, unfortunately. <laughs> I, I, I need to get into them as mo- a bit more, but I'm definitely more about the animal side. And so I love that I was able to learn about you know they teach about beachside vegetation about um rainforest vegetation um the differences between them and what makes each of them so special it was just so i just soaked it up like a sponge it was so interesting to me and i decided so halfway through my degree i decided to change it to ecology and i remember i just i just went into office and did it and afterwards i told my mom (laughs) (laughs) and um I mean, I did. I had a board, a board of education scholarship. I lost it for a little bit because apparently you can't just jump up and change your scholar, change your degree. So anybody on that train, just make sure you send them a letter first or something. And I remember when I got into third year. Now, remember I had talked about the prejudice about how you have to become a doctor if you want sciences. Yes, of course. Now, now I'm in the sciences, and the people who are doing physics and chemistry were looking down on the ecology people, saying, mm-hmm. "Oh." Y'all can't find no job. What are you going to do in Antigua? What are you going to do there? And I was like, you know what? I know Antigua has a lot of wildlife, and I know that somebody needs to be helping them out. And so I always knew that I was going to find something. And so while I was in third year, I started looking for jobs, and the Redonda option was on the EAT website. And I had my interview via Skype because I was still in Barbados. And surprisingly, they actually wanted me which was good <laughs> not so surprisingly and, well not so well quote unquote not so surprisingly but I was I was a bit one good thing was that they didn't say that you know you had to have a master's so or you had to have all this work experience and I do think because I was so fresh out of university that I was able to bring you know another level to it to you know make yeah. it because I was I was so so I've been active on social media about it um, doing surveys, going around in the schools, being able That's to camp out. Yeah, being able to camp out, being able to talk on the radio and stuff, you know. So I was just so excited and it's still, I'm always excited about Uganda. And so um, I actually want to go and get my master's in conservation biology. And what I really want to focus on is the seabirds. Um, so um, I'm pretty interested because the, the, another thing which I should say, I didn't mention that, oh my goodness. So with Redondo, with all that work, remember you talking about what makes it safe. So yeah. um, right now I have already, I presented um, the Redondo ecosystem reserve. So not only the island, but also protecting the seas around it as a protected area. Um, and so, yeah, um, we're just awaiting the cabinet decision now and working on the management plan. And so as that management plan is happening, I'm also um, trying to identify research priorities because it's my hope that, you know, state college students and UE5 Islands, whoop, whoop, UE5 Islands students <laughs> um, should be able to take Redonda as, you know, a resource that they can use. And so we're basically, because there's so much to study, the invertebrates, 
um, the um, marine aspect of it. So another thing I do is I dive. Um, so we scuba dive around Redonda um, and look at the different species that are there because we think that, you know, um, after a couple of years, because of course the island is stabilized and no longer falling into the sea, that we're gonna see some big changes underwater. Um, so looking forward to that. And so there's so much that can be researched and um, I, I definitely think I'm gonna do seabirds. I hope so. If not seabirds, then it will be kind of like an ecosystem, the ecosystem on a whole, how each mm -hmm. aspect is, you know, contributing to that. And um, with that knowledge, of course, it would benefit Antigua again and the region. It's all about contributing, you know, and making, making, and, and my thing is always try to make a little difference in the world. Um, and so for me, it's through the environment and trying to salvage whatever we have because um, my thing is, and I mean, a lot of people, well, his name is um, Prince Harry and Megan got in a lot of backlash because of what they were saying about having a chat one child because of the carbon emissions or whatever. Uh -huh. But the thing is, the next generation is the ones who are going to really have to deal with this climate change thing. If we think it's so bad now, imagine in the next 20, 30 years, how bad it's going to be, yep. you know? And so I feel like I am here as an ecologist at this specific time to try and make sure like, yes, even though in the big countries they're doing all of that stuff, here in Antigua and Barbuda, um, we're doing a lot. We are doing our part. And once you're doing your part, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's all that you can really do. Um, and so ecology, it's a really good field. And because one thing is that you're dealing with species, like I say, much better than dealing with humans. And you can really, reap the, you can see the rewards of your work. You can see all the, you can, it's, it's very, you don't have to wait. Like I, can, I find sometimes if you're doing a lot of office work, it's like, okay, I sent this email, I did this, I did that, but what is the, what has been the change? What has been the impact of it? But with, with Redonda, especially for me, I can see all the lizards coming back. I can see that they're not as, they're, they're not as afraid to come out as they were before. I can see that there's more birds that are surviving to adulthood. I can see there's more plants coming up, you know? Mm -hmm. It's very obvious what the work that I have done has done for them. So yeah, yeah. very rewarding field. And there's a lot of prospects here in Antigua for not just ecologists, but for science in general. Um, don't let you, don't, don't feel as if just because, you know, it's Antigua and a small island that you can't do anything here because you definitely can. If we want to follow you online and keep up to breast with all the work that you're doing, where would be the best place for people to find you? Right. So um, I am most active on Instagram and Twitter. Um, my handles for both of those are Bayesian Persuasion, because I was actually born in Barbados. Okay. <laughs> Fun fact again. Mm -hmm. um, so B-A-J-A-N Persuasion. Um, and so I do mostly, um, my, most of my environmental stuff would be um, on Twitter though. Um, of course, Instagram is for looks, but mostly in my stories <laughs> is where I have the environmental stuff. And so um, you can see me, you know, tweeting about the close seasons, how important they are, or, you know, just asking somebody. So again, asking somebody where they um, got some conk. I got me and my, co my coworker kind of found out a place on Twitter again this week. Um, and just, you know, educating people because what people let say they, if they don't, a lot of people, they don't genuinely know. And I feel good that, you know, people can come and ask me um, any kind of question about um, the environment or anything that they feel is a big issue. So I'll get people to say, hey, Shana, people are doing this at this place. Are they supposed to be doing that? And then although sometimes it's not my field because of where I'm positioned, where I work with the government and I work with the NGO, I probably know exactly who I should tell. And I can pass on that information so that you as a citizen know that, you know, you've done something right. Right. So, yes. That's wonderful. And thank you again so much for taking the time to talk to me today and also for the work that you're doing, not just on the ground restoring um, Redonda, but also in policing <laughs> the uh, <Yes. laughs> seasons and then educating people. Yeah. And raising the general awareness of yeah. what we're doing and the impact that we're having on our surroundings. It's really Yeah. Important. And make sure if you learned anything today, make sure you share it and just, just bring it up in conversation because again, educating others, we just need to keep educating others so that, so that, so that when they do, and I, that's why I say with the shaming. So my coworker, he messaged me and said, somebody at his, is, what is the close season done? 
um, I keep going on for close seasons, but it's the thing that gets the most drama with me on, on, online. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, is it, is it closed yet? And I was like, is it open, is it open yet? And I'm like, no, it's not. <laughs> my co- he's like, my co-worker just walked in here with Kong's water. I oh. was like, oh. <laughs> And so I went on Twitter and I was like, whoever is eating Kong's water at Terrence's workplace, I'm calling the police on you. <laughs> and do you know that the guy actually, um, he, he, res- he responded, he actually saw it on Twitter. Really? He was my SON, like my friend, who was like, about how he was actually feeling really bad. Because people, Good. some people, they still don't know, and they're supposed to feel bad, exactly. So the next time you have punk, you're supposed to be like, oh, nah, I really shouldn't be doing this. And you, you know that you feel bad because, I mean, the conks, they, the, the fish, they're just trying to survive. And all of us are trying to, like the Bible says, what, be fruitful and multiply. You're all trying yeah. to get your um, stuff in the next generation. And so it's just for all of us to, take a minute before we do, because everything we do, of course, has a reaction. Just making sure that whatever we do, that we take a moment before we do it and make sure that we, you know, minimize whatever hurtful impact we can have. And yeah. I, mean, I mean, that should be environmentally, but also in your general life. Yeah, just well, practice a little channel. restraint. <laughs> yeah, a little restraint. I feel like, it, um, yeah, I'm a Van Zandt like a motivational speaker with that line just now. <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> but um, yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank um, you for being I'm here. I'm glad to have been here.